Horrors and heroes, kings and common folk, all have their place in the colorful legends of Barsave. Legends unite the people of Barsave with their past and point the way toward their future. Inspired by legends, the heroes of Barsave fight to reclaim their world from the devastation of the Scourge and to free it from the remaining horrors. These heroes in turn spawn the legends that will inspire Barsave's future generations. Astandar's Devotion In the years before the Scourge, when the races of Barsave struggled to carve shelters against the horrors from the living rock of the earth, the elven village of Golden Moon lay where the River Shile meets the shores of Lake Ban. Golden Moon was so named because the crystal waters of the lake turned the moon's reflection into beautiful golden orb, and the elementalists in the village had a special gift for water magic. In times so ancient that the scourge itself was no more than a passing, uneasy thought in the mind of the world, magicians from across Barsave and the lands beyond had sought out Golden Moon's wizards and learned from them. Princes of Thera, ragged magicians from Crystal Raider clans, and countless others came to Golden Moon to learn the ways of water magic. And as the dark night of the Scourge drew near, still more came to learn the secrets that might save their peoples. One such seeker was Anthros Lucar, a young and headstrong quester of Garlen from a village of humans deep in the Dolores Mountains. On his long journey to Golden Moon, Anthros had faced and conquered many perils, yet he carried in his heart a terrible fear, for he knew that the horrors were drawing ever closer to his village's care. He knew also that his people needed certain knowledge that only Golden Moon's wizards might grant, the knowledge of how to draw water from stones in order to slake the thirst of those dwelling beneath the earth. He alone of all the villagers could learn the necessary enchantments, and so he made his lonely journey, not knowing what might await him upon his return. In Golden Moon, Anthros devoured his lessons like a ravenous thunder beast. No others who studied along with him rose from their beds as early nor retired as late. When other young men and women walked by the lake shore or talked of pleasant nonsense over a cup of wine, Anthros read his magical books and peppered the wizards with questions. Of all the eager strangers learning magic in Golden Moon, Anthros alone made no friends. He noticed no living being who was not a wizard, except for the lovely elf maiden, Kai Ramai. Though he kept his regard a secret deep within his heart, he looked upon her beauty and grace and fell in love. Now, Kairamai knew much of her people's magic, but little of the world beyond the village. She looked upon the serious young human from the far west and marveled, for of all the young men she knew, he alone seemed impervious to her charms. Kind words, friendly jests, gifts of fruit and wine to make his studies less burdensome. Nothing Kai did earned her more than swiftly mumbled thanks from the somber youth. Not even her beauty could make him put aside his books and speak with her. And the less he seemed to notice her, the more Kai desired his attention. By the end of seven days, Kai's interest in Anthros had warmed to love, and after much thought, she devised a playful way to attract his attention. Back in those days, as now, folk ended the evening meal with a honey-filled sweetbread. Just before the village sat down to eat one night, Kai took up Anthros's sweet and cast over it a subtle enchantment to make the honey form itself into amusing pictographs. By this jest, Kai hoped to pierce Anthros's aloof veneer, to her surprise, Anthros broke open the enchanted pastry and ate it in two gulps without even seeing the pictures beneath his nose. Not one to be easily discouraged, Kairamai enchanted sweetbread after sweetbread every night, changing the honey shapes from playful notes to loving poems 
to bawdy couplets and randy jokes. All these anthros devoured in seeming ignorance, while the rest of the village laughed at the spectacle. Though the young man's heart burned within him to see his beloved become the object of others' jests, he dared not speak, lest love distract him from his learning. And Kai went from a merry maiden to a sad, pale shadow of herself, convinced that all her efforts to win Anthros's love had failed. After three months had passed in this way, Kai sought solace in a grove of trees where the passion Astendar often walked. Astendar took pity on the lovely maiden and the handsome youth, and bade Kai remind to make the evening's sweet bread with her own hands. The passion told her to think of her love for Anthros while she shaped the pastry, to name the sweetbread after him, and to serve the sweetbread to Anthros herself. Do all these things, said Astendar in a voice like the sweetest music, and I will open the gate of your love's hidden heart. Kai did as the passion bade her, and when evening came she served Anthros every course of the meal. Not with the meat, nor the bread, nor the fruits of the earth did the youth even gaze at the maiden who tended him so lovingly. But Kai was not saddened, for she remembered Astendar's promise. As the meal drew to a close, Kai placed Anthros's sweet bread on a plate and set it down before him. Anthros bit into the pastry, and a look of wonder came over his face. Slowly, as if the taste was a marvel to his tongue, the young man ate the small mouthful of sweet bread. Then he looked at Kai Ramai, and adoration shone in his eyes. The flood of feeling he had kept hidden in his heart surged forth. Anthros clasped Kai's hands in his own and professed his undying love for her. The sound of her voice, the delicate scent of her skin as she passed him, the music of her laughter, all these things and more he had loved since he first saw her and would love until the day he died. At Anthros's declaration, all the village wept for joy. Even the passions wept tears from their eyes. So moved were Kai's mother and father that they called Anthros beloved son, and gave their blessing on a marriage if Anthros and Kai desired it. And at these words, the village shouted Astendar's name in praise. But then Anthros spoke softly to Kai, and the maiden bowed her head in sorrow. The village fell silent as Anthros told them that he could not marry Kai. Though to stay with her forever was the dearest wish of his heart, he must go back to his village. The water magic he had learned at Golden Moon was his people's only hope. He must return to them with his hard-won knowledge, even though the horrors stalking the land to the west might already have destroyed his home. To risk his own life meant nothing, as long as any hope remained of saving his village, but he would not submit Kai to such an uncertain fate. Then Kai pleaded with him, declaring that she did not wish to live except by his side. Still he refused her, and Kai, in despair, called Astendar's name. The passion appeared before them all, and added her pleas to Kai's, but Anthros was adamant. Not for anything would he risk exposing his beloved to one moment of a horror's attentions. Hearing the wisdom in his words, the passion blessed the young couple, softening their bitter anguish to a gentle, wistful longing, such as we often feel for departed joys. To honor their loving courage, Astendar declared that any two lovers who consecrate their sweetbreads to each other in honor of Kai Ramai and Anthros Lukar will know each other's hearts in ways that others never can. And so, to this day, Lovers bless their pastries, naming them for distant mates in the hope that when they break open the sweet bread, the honey inside will form a message from their beloved. And to this day, Astendar's devotion gives us all hope for the safety of those nearest our hearts. The Dance of Corencia
You who know nothing of the power of dance, let me tell you the dance of Corencia. The dancer, pure in heart, who performs these graceful movements will experience the true magic of dance and no power beyond the dreams of ordinary folk. The first steps you must take are those of Corencia, the brave elven troubadour, when she first fell into the hands of the Therans. The steps of slavery that she trod, you must tread to feel her pain, anguish, and humiliation. Three times you must perform this step, for the three years she lived in the foul Theron slave pits. During those nights, those long nights chained, Carencia plotted and schemed. Never once did she allow her captors to chain her mind as they had chained her body. Never once must you allow your steps to falter as you stamp out the elven rhythm of the stars. After time upon time had passed, Carencia hit upon a way to free the slaves of the palace. So too must you hit your mark at the beginning of the step called Abelia allowing the rage hidden in her mind to teach her body what it must know to succeed. Carencia bent her graceful neck to her Theron masters and pretended obedience. Drinking in Carencia's worship and fear, as Carencia wished to drink of their blood, the Therans swayed to the music of her hatred. Let Carencia's hate sweep upward like flames as your feet reach higher and faster and flow with the music of the fire as you dance with Carencia the greedy round of the Therans. Then, as Carencia did in the darkness of her cell, let your muscles flicker through the steps of a dance of power. For months, Carencia practiced her dance, perfecting every movement. The slightest mistake would render it more useless and base than any Theron amusement. So must you dance the dance of time, as the long months pass by. When she had perfected her dance, Carencia prepared her fellow slaves for escape. An ocean of whispers filled the nights in the underbelly of the Theron palace, now you must dance the whispers. Bowing before the bloated lord and master of the Therans, cunning Carencia told him of a dance she had created in his honor. Curling against him and arching as the great dancer Ophelia taught us so well in bygone days, Carencia convinced the prideful Theron of the innocent merit of her intent. Be certain to play both parts, for only by both sets of steps is the posturing of Thera exposed. A message went out to all the Therans of the palace and surrounding town, to attend on the Lord that very night. The calls of the bugle, the busy preparation for evening's feast, the scents of sweat, wine, and perfumes filled the air and swirled together in the closeness of the palace. As each Theron took his place, the tension mounted. Three times the pacing pattern must touch the earth and move the air, until the water of sweat mingles with the fire of your body. Then you are ready, as Carencia was, to face the Theron master in a combat of her own choosing. To the accompaniment of the subdued clapping of the slaves, Carencia began her dance. No words could describe her honeyed movements, the tilt of her head, the twirl of her skirts. Her leaps were breathtaking, her spins superb. Nothing can compare to it, nor should you make the attempt. Instead, make the ancient movements of honor in battle. As Carencia danced, her Theron captors grew slack-jawed. Glasses crashed to the floor in time to the beat of the music, and not a single Theron eye could turn from Carencia's commanding form. Majesty was hers that night. Make it yours as well. On and on Carencia danced, as the slaves freed themselves and fled the palace that had been the tomb of so many before them. Even when the echoes of the final slave's footsteps, the final slave but one, faded into the night, still Carencia danced. On into the night Carencia danced, every foot and finger ever in place, for one mistake could cost the lives of all. Hours upon hours after her fellows had fled, the brave and beautiful Carencia, 
slipped to the cold marble floor in the spiral of the dying rose, dead before the first of the enraged Therans could reach her. She too had escaped her captor's grasp, and the slaves were free, as are we. The Fire Pool In the fertile river valley lived a brother and a sister, a brave and noble family, brought through honor and through strife. Let us journey, said the sister, to the high-end crystal mountains, to the mountains that can teach us to be strong and win at life. I will go with you, dear sister, said the brave and noble brother. We can journey to the caverns, we can bring great honor home. Beg our father to consent, pleaded his wise and cunning sister. I'll tell mother not to worry, not to cry when we leave them. So the two began their journey through the wild and untamed mountains, to the mythic endless cavern from which beasts and creatures came. There they went to face the challenge of the deep and blinding darkness, to transform their simple family, to bring home an honored name. They brought with them only water and a sacred text to pray on, loaves of bread to nourish them, bow and arrow and a blade. Though the expedition taxed them, they met every danger bravely, ceasing not their splendid journey, until by the cave they laid. Then the sister, gazing toward the black and yawning cavern mouth, heard a voice speak deep within her, urging calm and contemplation. Let us stop to fast, my brother. Let us fast and meditate. So with purpose, pure as water, she began her meditation. Brother tried to follow sister on the path of pure intention, but his pride arose and spoke louder than his inmost soul. Swelled with pride, his heart said to him, I am bravest, I am purest, I can find my way alone. I need no aid to reach our goal. With her meditations ended, noble sister ventured forward, following her favorite brother who had jumped into the lead. Follow closely, little sister, stay behind me, said the brother, said the bold and prideful brother, striding forward with great speed. So the two explored the passage, keeping close though never trembling. Brother walked with blade unsheathed, and sister knocked her arrow straight. Through the darkened cave they ventured, toward a distant glowing circle, never caring what might lie there, sworn to make their family great. Drawing near the tunnel's ending, what they saw gave them a fright. At the end of their dark journey lay a boiling pool of fire. Now the brother halted, gaping silent at the flaming shoreline, awestruck at the conflagration, fearing death within the pyre. Brother, called his braver sister, eyes alight with flames of courage, let us take our weapons closer and immerse them if we can. Clear-eyed, brave, and clever sister realized this haunting fire could not be the name-giver's magic, nor the work of nature's hand. I agree, the brother said, but soft lest his sister hear his fears. His sister stepped toward the fire, eager for a hero's deed. Down the cavern wall she climbed, bruised by stones and singed by heat. Forward, said her brave heart, arms of flame are yours, should you succeed. Suddenly the rock beneath her feet betrayed her, down she fell, sliding, crashing down the cavern toward the hotly burning fires. Brother, help me! Sister cried, reaching toward where she stood staring, but he pulled away in fear, sprang for safety higher, higher. From the blaze the sister screamed, shaming brother to his bones, yet he watched and did not aid her, only watched her drown below. Soon he could no longer see her body through the crimson flashes. Soon the heat took all his breath. His eyes saw only fire's glow. The ground beneath him shook like thunder. Flames shot to the cavern's roof. Deep within the fearsome rumbling, brother heard his sister's voice. 
Wicked brother, coward brother, boomed the voice out of the pit. Would you leave me here forever? Will you make that awful choice? Then the brother, weeping, fell onto his knees and begged for grace. Pity me, he cried before her. I was weak and cowardly. To join his sister's fiery doom was all that his shamed soul desired. But his body would not obey him, so he stayed there on his knees. Suddenly, a graceful hand reached toward him from the fire's heart, a hand no longer of this world, reaching through the skin of flame. His sister touched his forehead lightly, searing flesh he bore the pain, with courage flinching not repentant, as she said, This is your fame. Brother fled from his dead sister through the dark and winding passage, through the cave to sunlit surface with the scar of her touch on him. Come back for me, help me, cried the soul that once lived as his sister. In his head, her dying screams echoed until his spirit left him. Through the centuries of the scourge, we've kept this tale alive. Still lies the sister in the pool, alive in flames, she cannot die. Though the brother died a madman, for her sake he told her story. Somewhere in the oldest mountains, a fire pool holds her sad cries. Lissar's Wondrous Pack of Tales When the world was young and clean, when we could travel the land without fear of horrors, the folk of Barsave told wonderful stories. Troubadours were more common in those days, and many had great skill. But none were as skilled as the two trolls Lassar and Hakaba. These two went from town to town, village to village, spinning tales to catch the heart and mind as well as the ear and eye. And every story they invented or heard they wrote down and placed in Lassar's wondrous pack of tales. Life had not always been so easy for them, however. Before Lassar and Hakaba came to tell tales together, not many folk would listen to either of them alone. And even though Lassar had the pack of tales, by herself she could not draw stories from it that would keep the people's attention. Only the stories she told with Hakaba made the people laugh and cry and clamor for more. After many years, Hakaba, who was the elder, died. Lassar missed him greatly, and her stories became mere shadows of themselves. Finally, after mourning Hakaba for the proper time, Lassar sent off in search of someone new to tell tales with. She wandered high and low, near and far, telling tales for coin, though not doing very well. But nowhere could she find the partner she sought. Nowhere could she find the one who could lend true inspiration to her pack of tales. One day, Lassar came to the town of Kisroth, just off the king's road to Thrall. She saw the folk all gathering in the town square and asked a passing dwarf child where they were going. "'To see the troubadour, of course,' said the child. "'He's a windling. We have never seen him before. I hope he will tell tales as funny as the last troubadour did.' Lissar, curious to see the windling, followed the child to the square and settled down for a good listen. Well, it turned out the great windling bard Merrick, as he called himself, had little skill at his craft. In fact, he was worse than any troubadour Lissar had ever heard. His eyes were flat, he did not see deeply, and so could not discern what the people wanted to hear. His gestures were ill-timed, his voice thin, and once he even forgot the thread of the tale he was weaving. All around Lissar folk muttered and groused, heaping scorn on Merrick for his terrible tale-telling. But Lissar felt sorry for the poor, hapless windling, for she remembered what it felt like to lose an eager crowd. Poor Merrick went on spinning his tale, trying to ignore the folk who left one by one. As he spoke the last few words, he looked around and saw that the few who remained were slouched back, comfortably sleeping. In the windling's face as he gazed around the square, 
Lissar saw anger and a heartbreaking loneliness. But before Lissar could speak a word of comfort to him, Marek sprang from the ground and fluttered away. As he flitted past a fat human who was snoring as loudly as three thunder beasts, Marek stopped, hovered, and then reached toward the human's dangling purse. Marek loosened the fat purse with quick and nimble fingers, but it was so heavy that it fell from his arms and spilled a heap of jingling coins all over the ground. The sound woke the fat human, who grabbed Merrick and shook him, crying, Thief! Windling thief! Just then, Lassar said, I saw it all. Your purse fell open, and the little fellow was gathering up your coin for you. The human looked at Lassar, disbelief plain on his fat face, but at the sight of her strong arms and determined expression, he decided he had no wish to quarrel. He let the windling go with a curt nod of thanks and took his heels. And from that day on, Lissar stayed at Merrick's side. The two of them traveled to the next town, where a crowd gathered in the square to hear the great windling bard tell stories. Before the people came, Lissar took a story from the pack of tales for Merrick, and the windling told it so well that the whole town clapped and cheered. His thin voice gained new strength, his gestures came at just the right time, and he made the people laugh until tears ran down their faces. And from that day onward, Merrick was a proud and happy windling, but he never thanked Lissar, who had given him such success with her wondrous pack of tales. Lissar helped Merrick in other ways as well. She knew all the best inns to eat and sleep at, and all the important folk of every town to whom Merrick should speak in order to build his fame far and wide. And he did build his fame far and wide, but never did he tell anyone that he owed his fame to Lissar and her wondrous pack of tales. Now, some of you may wonder why Lissar did not slay this proud and petty windling for his dishonorable ingratitude, or at least why she did not leave him and find someone else with whom to share her pack of tales. But Lissar was a true troubadour, and for her nothing satisfied honor as much as seeing a good tale well told. She knew that it was her stories that made Merrick great. She did not need the adulation of the world to tell her so. After many years, when Merrick reached 157 years, the noble Lissar died. Suddenly, the great Merrick stopped traveling and stopped telling stories. For a time, people came to him and begged for stories, but he turned everyone away. Some said Merrick's age had made him weak in the head so that he couldn't remember his stories anymore. But the truth was that without Lissar, Windling could not use the pack of tales. Lissar left it to him as a gift, but he was too soft-headed to learn its secrets. The great bard Merrick died in his 161st year, and his own story is now bound into the pack and no one knows what has become of Lissar's wondrous pack of tales. The Nameless Lad Barsave is an empty land still, echoing with the faint cries of the horror's countless victims. Even the plants and animals that have begun to reclaim their places seem to feel still the injuries done to their kind during the horror's long, unchallenged reign. Throughout this lonely wilderness wanders one among us who is lonelier still, the one name-givers call the Nameless Lad. Each of us, both great and small, is a name-giver. We pride ourselves on our names. With them, we carve out our unique lives in this vast universe to which we all belong. Without our names, what would we be? How would we know who we truly are? None of us knows, except the Nameless Lad. During the last years of the Scourge, a human boy was born to a care in the south of Barsave. Strong and healthy and wailing he was born, like many other babes, but he was also different. His mother and father named him, as all parents name their young, 
yet the first name they chose was soon forgotten by the folk of the care, and so the boy's parents chose another. This second name somehow sounded wrong, and so they chose a third. But no one in the care, not even the boy's father and mother, could say the third name right. No matter what name the parents chose for their son, something always went wrong with it. It seemed as if the names did not wish to be tied to the boy, as if no name wanted him. The boy's parents wept and called on the passions to aid them, but still they could find no name right for their son. Soon the folk of the care began to mutter that the lad must have been born horror-marked, for all names to refuse him. As the boy grew older, the other children shunned him as if he carried an invisible plague. Mothers and fathers snatched their sons and daughters from his path. Questers of Garlin refused to heal his ills. None except his mother would give him food. She sometimes saved him scraps meant for the pigs. And all this time, the nameless lad uttered no word of complaint or anger. He accepted every slight as his due and spent his time exploring the tunnels and caverns out of sight of other people. As the time of the boy's adult name-taking neared, the folk of the care murmured again that the lad must be horror-tainted. On the eve of the naming ritual, the lad's mother and father came to him dressed in the white of mourning and told him that the care's people planned to sacrifice him at dawn in hopes of appeasing the horrors that drew ever nearer to their frail sanctuary. This news saddened the boy, but did not surprise him. Gathering together his few possessions, the nameless lad slipped away and hid in the care's depths. A year and a day passed, and still the boy remained hidden. The folk of the care searched for him, growing ever more certain that they must destroy the nameless lad to save their care from the horrors. Finally, the care's leaders discovered an old rockfall in the farthest reaches of the care's tunnels. Suddenly convinced that the boy was hiding behind the boulders, the leaders ordered laborers to remove them. As the last of the boulders fell away, the leaders gave a cry of triumph that suddenly turned to cries of terror and anguish as the oozing, rot-ridden shape of a horror emerged from the newly uncovered hole in the care wall. Soon all that remained of the care's people were scraps of flesh, mindless bodies, and the echoes of their dying screams. None survived the horror's onslaughts, except the nameless lad. Again and again, invading horrors left the boy untouched, as if he did not exist. When the lad realized that the horrors would not destroy him, he steeled his heart and walked out among them, watching and remembering the dreadful fate of his people at the hands of the horrors and their own irrational fears. It is said the nameless lad spent years within the dead care before leaving it to wander Barsave, his only companions the tomes he filled with his thoughts and observations. It is said that when he first came out of the cold ground, he was the only name-giver wandering the surface of Barsave, he was the only witness to sights so terrible that the greatest hero might shrink from them in fear. And still he wanders across Barsave, seeing and remembering all that happens under the wide sky. But in all his wanderings, the nameless lad has never seen or known anything so terrible as the eagerness of his own people to kill him simply to ease their fear of what they did not understand. The Lost Dream of Wormwood Strong you grew in ancient days, when green and living heart you bore. Soft your flowers kissed our feet, alas, that wormwood lives no more. Your gentle breeze a lover's kiss, your stars like bright eyes gazing down. These you gave, and more than this, alas, for wormwood's fallen crown. Each green leaf a lover's touch, each bird's song a lullaby. Beauty's home and heart were yours, alas, for wormwood doomed to die. Still do your beloved seek you, though your beauties turn to gall, 
Still you draw us ever toward you, seeking comfort, risking all. Though your love is bitter ashes, though the sharp thorns tear your heart, while you bleed red tears of anguish, we will come and ne'er depart. In the wood we'll meet with death, and speak your name with our last breath. I sing sad songs in honor of my friend Uthar, who left us scarcely a year ago. He was a maker of jewels and a singer of songs so beautiful that the saddest heart grew lighter at the sound of his voice. His eyes were as bright as the gems he cut, and he moved with the grace of a slender young tree in the wind. I knew him well, and loved him as a brother. He first began to change in the reigning time before last, where once he had sung songs about nature's beauty and the wonder of life, he began to sing mournful ballads. Songs of love lost, of hope betrayed, of joy turned to ashes, all these he sang. He worked more slowly and often put down his jeweler's tools to stand by the window and gaze out at the gray rain. Everyone said it was the rain that oppressed him, that when the dry time came and the sun shone again, Uthar would sing glad songs once more. But on the first clear day of the dry time, I saw Uthar standing in the doorway of his house, gazing up at the stars with the longing look of a rejected lover. When I went to share the joy of the sight with him, I saw tears rolling down his cheeks. I spoke his name, but he did not answer me. He simply stood there, gazing at the stars and crying without a sound. Four days after that, Uthar stopped working in the middle of the day and started to walk out of the village. I went after him and asked where he was going, unweaponed and with no clothing or provisions packed. To Wormwood, he told me, his eyes clouded with dreams. Uthar, whose eyes had always shone so clear. I put a gentle hand upon his arm and told him he must not go, not yet. Your father will return from the market town tomorrow. Stay until then, Uthar, so that you may bid him goodbye. Garlen be praised he listened to me, though his footsteps dragged all the way home. At the village gate he stopped and looked toward the far horizon. The purple haze of heather on the far-off hills seemed to call to him, as if it was playing some music that he couldn't quite hear. His eyes seemed to pierce the distance, and every line of his body was tense with longing. After his father's return, Uthar tried again to leave. His parents and brothers followed him, arguing and pleading with him to stay, but he shook them off angrily, even his mother, to whom he had never spoken a single angry word. As he began to stride out of the village gate, his brother Anthir struck him, and he fell senseless to the ground. They picked him up gently and carried him inside, and all around me I heard the voices of the village folk whispering with dread, wood-longing, wood-longing. He tried to leave the village many more times, growing more frenzied with every failed effort. He ceased to sing at all. Indeed, music angered him because the sound of it drowned out the bird song from Wormwood. His family had to tie him to his pallet to keep him from wandering off at night. Soon he ceased to eat and grew so weak that he could scarcely stand. Yet still he kept trying to get up, to leave the village and go to Wormwood. Everyone told him Wormwood was no more, that the Scourge and the Elf Queen had corrupted it beyond recognition. But Uthar would not listen. He lay on his pallet, dazed and weak, plucking feebly at the coverlet and muttering of the beauties of Wormwood. Once, after a night of evil dreams, he sat upright and shouted, I am coming! I swear it! Wait for me! Don't abandon me! Nothing eased his pain and anguish, and we feared that he would die. And so, when the raining time drew near again, I said that I would accompany him to Wormwood. For the first time in many months, Uthar got up from his sickbed and ate 
and seemed to see the world around him. We knew the wood longing still had him in his grip, because Wormwood was all he talked of. I reminded him of Bloodwood's perils, but he seemed not to hear me. As we made ready for our journey, a faint glimmer of Uthar's old happiness came back to him. As he helped me pack our saddlebags, with gentle patience, as if humoring a child, he talked of how beautiful the wood was, and how glad he was to share it with me. His words made me turn away, lest he see the tears I could no longer hold back. At dawn, in a chill rain, we left the village. By the time we had traveled a scant few miles, I was shivering with cold inside my woolen cloak, but Uthar rode singing, as if the sun shone as bright as fire. The downpour did not vex him. He hardly seemed to notice it. All through our journey it rained, and Uthar's body shivered in the damp just as mine did, but his body's discomfort could not pierce the dream of wormwood that failed his mind. With every step he grew stronger, and more of his old joy shone in his face. Even the perils of the road, which you all know only too well, could not turn his thoughts from the happiness of returning to Wormwood. At long last, we rode to the top of a grassy ridge and saw our destination. Below us, like a dazzling pool of dark green water, lay Bloodwood. Even I gasped at the beauty of it, and for a wild moment wondered if Uthar had been right after all. Had Wormwood somehow returned? But then I felt the coldness of it, as if the voice of death had whispered a warning in my ear. Be gone, said the wind rustling through the trees. I know you not. Leave me to my pain. Leave me. Beside me, Uthar gave a glad shout and spurred his horse to a gallop. As if paralyzed, I watched him reach the shadows of the trees before I thought to set my own mount to running. Terrible foreboding rose in my throat, choking me so that I could not even scream. But even if I could have, it would have been too late for a huge gray wolf galloped out of the forest and hurled itself at Uthar, knocking him from his horse. He had laughed with a sheer joy as he watched it come, but his laughter turned to screams as the creature bit and tore at his flesh. Over Uthar's screams I heard the howling of the rest of its pack. Even as I slid off my horse and drew my long knife, the thorn-pierced wolf sank its teeth into Uthar's throat. His body went rigid, then limp. The distant howls grew louder, filling the awful silence. I mounted my horse and galloped away, terrified that I might hear the sounds of pursuit. Thank the passions, my horse found its way back up the slope, for my tears for Uthar blinded me, and to this day I do not remember how I reached the top of the ridge. Like many an elf before him, Uthar had returned to Wormwood, but Bloodwood killed him, as, in a way, it has killed us all. How Lord Jack Bone Tusk Found His Passion Some years ago, not long after the end of the scourge, a Bone Tusk Drakkar met the Therans in battle over the Twilight Peaks. The crew of the Drakkar fought well and bravely, remembered be their names, but could not win against five Theran ships. The Drakkar went down in flames and crashed against the frozen side of a mountain. Only the lowliest shipmate, Lord Jack Bone Tusk, survived and even he was badly wounded. Alone, injured, freezing, and without food, Lord Jack had not long to live unless he could find shelter. So Lord Jack crawled along the steep mountainside, ignoring pain and his growing fear that he was lost in the peaks. He could have been a mere Drakkar length from a troll village, and not have known it. So dark was the frozen night. Growing weaker and weaker with every passing moment, Lord Jack pushed on, driven by his will to survive, and his thirst for vengeance. 
just as his strength began to fail, Orjak saw a golden light shining from the mountainside ahead. He made his way toward it and discovered a cave, its entrance covered by the hanging moss through which the warm light spilled. With the last of his strength, Lorjak dragged his battered body inside the cave. Instead of bare rock, he found a fantastical garden of plants growing in the golden light. A gentle spring bubbled and sang nearby, and small birds hopped from branch to branch among the flowering bushes. Scattered on the ground amid the soft grass were gleaming gold coins and glowing gems. Wondering if he had gone to the realm of departed spirits, Lorjak collapsed on the grass. Just before he fell asleep, he saw a troll woman, tall and beautiful, who knelt beside him and placed his aching head upon her lap. All night, Lorjak dreamed of the woman tending him and healing his wounds, giving him the loving comfort of a mother. When he awoke the next morning, the cave was gone. Instead of soft grass beneath him, Lorjak felt hard rock and saw that he was nestled in a rocky crag that had shielded him from the wind. His injuries had disappeared, and his stomach felt as full as if he had eaten a hearty breakfast. Healed and refreshed, Lorjak made his way back to his moot. Upon his safe arrival home, he gave honor to the passion Garlin, whom he knew had saved his life that night, even though he had never served her. Lorjak told his tale to his wife and children and to all others who would listen. Many of the moot folk searched the twilight peaks for the cave Lorjak spoke of, but none could find it. The wondrous cave remained hidden, even from adepts whose disciplines should have assured their success in finding it. The cave belongs to Garlin, and she will only reveal it to those in dire need of its healing. And Lorjak? He lived to a great age because Garlin blessed him. One day, he gathered his few possessions and set off alone into the peaks in search of the healing passion. His great-grandsons, fearing that their beloved grandsire would die on the mountain, followed him up the narrow winding trails. But all traces of Lord Jack's passing vanished long before his kin approached the highest slopes. Some say Lord Jack died that day and was eaten by wild beasts, but we bone tusks know better. Lord Jack returned to Garland's magical cave, where he lives in peace and contentment with the passion who saved his life. <laughs>